Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Uh, on this week's episode, we start with two different authors looking at a common set of issues about the durability of new democracies. First, we talked to Muhammad Ali Karivar of Boston College about his new book, Popular Politics and the Path to Durable Democracy. And then we talked to Georgetown's Killian Clark about his new article, Ambivalent Allies. After that, we talked to Shreya Parikh about the recent wave of anti-African, anti-immigrant, and anti-Black sentiment unleashed by President Kais Saeed in Tunisia. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Muhammad Ali Kadivar uh, from Boston College, the author of the new book, Popular Politics and the Path to Durable Democracy, uh, just published by Princeton University Press. Uh, Ali, uh, thanks for coming back on to the program. Uh, hi, Mark. Thank you for having me here. So it's great to see this book out. Um, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? I think from the inception, this book it has taken a decade from the idea to turn to a book. And I think I'm saying this here for the first time. This started uh, from a conversation I had with my father after the Arab Spring. And we were contemplating about why this like, Mubarak regime and Ben Ali regime crumbled, but the Islamic Republic didn't. Mm -hmm. and it hasn't to this day. And he had the idea that those were regimes that came out of military coups, but Iranian Islamic Republic came out of the a revolution, a popular revolution. This is not exactly the idea in the book, mm -hmm. but that idea, of course, as you know, ideas transform a lot to turn into research. So this is the upside down of that idea here i looked at the durability of new democracies not new authoritarian regimes but there's a similar mechanism um so uh, the main question i ask here is why some new democracies crumble quickly while while the other ones survive for a longer period of time and what i highlight here is the way democracies emerge the path of democratization this is, again, an idea that previously transitologists also have adopted and elaborated. Um, their idea, people such as Samuel Huntington, was that uh, trans democratic transitions are successful that operate through elite pacts. If elite agree on the matters of transition, then you will have a lasting democracy. But as he says, if... Uh, collective actors are involved, and democracies have a very small chance of survival. I argue the opposite here, that it's democracies that emerge from below, uh, from uh, periods of long unarmed mobilization that have higher chances of survival. Why? Because to mobilize over a long period of time, movements need to build an organizational infrastructure develop coalitions, uh, develop a discourse that mobilize people. There's just more time to think about the agenda of the transition. And these issues all matter for the transition time and for um, the new democracy that will come into place. The organizations, the leaderships that will be developed, the coalitions that will be uh, built, these are crucial for uh, that moment. So this is the main idea of the book. And 
then I go through the empirics, uh, yeah. which are both quantitative and comparative. Well, so there's a lot going on there. And um, so so one of the issues is about time and the other is about the nature of the opposition. And uh, so, so let's talk that through a little bit. Um, why is it that you need kind of a long period of mobilization and why and what types of mobilization do you need to be seeing in order for this to work? So the long mobilization is important because it it is it is needed for building organizations and put together coalitions. If under some conditions you have a strong organizations and a coalition that comes into place quickly, then you don't need long mobilization. But as we know, organization building takes time, coalition building takes time, agreeing on the parameter of transition doesn't just happen on its own. In the book, I talk, for example, what happened in Egypt and Tunisia when the protest mobilization was relatively shorter than cases that I discussed, such as South Africa and Poland. And those countries had have had a lot of problems dealing with disagreements between different uh, opposition groups. What type of mobilization? So what I emphasize is unarmed mobilization. There is a big difference between armed and unarmed mobilization in terms of organization building. Armed insurgency, uh, you can lead an armed insurgency with an elite organization, a cadre of trained uh, military leaders. The, these organizations are often vertical. Secrecy is a principle of these organizations and top-down decision-making. You don't have like democratic military organizations. But in unarmed mobilization, you need the numbers. You need to involve hundreds of thousands of people for to have a successful uprising, revolution, or social movements. To build that, to, to have that, to sustain that, then uh, you need a vast organization. These type of organizations are more open to democratic principles uh, of organizing. The type of discourse that would be developed in nonviolent uh, resistance, again, is probably more compatible with principles of democracy. Leaders that would be developed, again, are more likely to be democratic leaders. Again, not in all cases they end up acting democratically, but comparing with uh, military campaigns and military insurgency, there's a higher probability. Now, you place a, a greater emphasis on uh, formal organizations uh, than than other other arguments along these lines do. Is that just because you're a sociologist? Well, so think about democracy. Democracy is formal organization. It's about decision making. We need rules about our disagreement, about how to resolve conflict. So if we are trying to build a regime that has formal rules of decision making, we should be able to make this organization at a smaller level. I think it's wishful thinking to think, okay, we can't make these formal organizations at the level of a union or political party, but we can make it uh, like country, uh, countrywide level of organization. So that's one reason. The other reason is, is I think mechanisms of accountability could become more transparent and clear in formal organizations. Not all formal organizations are democratic. I mean, we have a long tradition of democratic centralism, which was the organizing principle of the communist parties, which we know was only centralist. It was not democratic. But informal uh, organizations, it's hard to 
think about how it could be democratic. What are the mechanisms of uh, collective decision-making, collective deliberation? What are the mechanisms of accountability? So there is more room for maneuver in informal organizations to get away with democratic accountability than informal organizations. I think in, in those sense, formal organizations are conducive or com more compatible uh, with, with democracy. Now, through through many of your case studies uh, and uh, in your theoretical argument, you place a lot of emphasis specifically on labor unions um, as one of the key carriers of, you know, this these, this formal organization and mobilization. Yes. So labor unions are among the one of the most important organizations of civil society. And there are reasons that I have highlighted their role. And I it was not just my idea. I studied these cases of successful democratization and labor unions were in many of them, not in all of them, but in many of them. One reason is that labor unions can grow quite large. Um, there are just the size of the working class you have in a country, which is mostly formal working class than, that, that yet to have unions. So it allows them to grow large. You can, for example, compare them with human rights organizations. Human rights organizations also care about values of democracy, inclusivity, equality, but they're quite small in their size because what they do, they usually try to identify cases of human rights violation and they try to publicize them, be in touch with other human rights organizations outside the country. You can usually do this with a small group of people. They could grow larger if they, for example, try to mobilize like countrywide campaigns, but they rarely do that kind of mm -hmm. uh, things. So that's the issue of uh, size is important. The second is that um, unions are in touch with the day-to-day -day need of ordinary people. So they have capacity for articulating what people talk about, what people need, what they are frustrated to the national level or regional level. Another reason that they're important for democratization and transition period is um, unions are equally uh, familiar with two aspects of politics, uh, accommodation and conflict. These are two sides of politics. You can't only have conflict or only accommodation. So they go on a strike, for example, which is about conflict, and they also negotiate with uh, their employers to get what they want. And these are two skills you need during transition periods. Um, if you cannot provide popular pressure, you don't have leverage in negotiations. And if you are not willing to negotiate, then you can just end up in gridlocks. We see this in like, especially new youth movement, for example, they put a lot of emphasis in conflict and they consider any type of accommodation, treason, and violation of popular sovereignty, radical democracy, and so on. And then you on the other side, we have this reformist elite for, in different, for example, Middle Eastern country that we know that they're afraid of popular mobilization. They think that will just bring chaos and lead to a harsher crackdown. So they often try to demobilize the masses so they can negotiate through like back channels. Mm -hmm. But without that popular mobilization negotiations, uh, don't work either. For these reasons, uh, unions, if they enter the mobilization process and negotiation process, they could be important. It doesn't mean they always side uh, with democracy, but we need them for 
building cross-sectoral uh, alliances that are often required for democratization processes. And for you, this is one of the big differences between Egypt and Tunisia uh, in terms of uh, the organization of those uh, democracy movements. Yes. So, I mean, many have engaged with the, like, why uh, Egypt failed right away while Tunisia didn't. I mean, Tunisian democracy is certainly not doing well, even, I don't know if we can call it democracy anymore. But it did for 10 years, and that's an important uh, achievement, the level of democracy. I mean, the scores that uh, Tunisian democracy has received, for example, from VDEM, which is a non-major data set of democracy, is the highest score any, score any Middle Eastern country has received since giving those scores. It was also the first time I think Islamists and non-Islamists encountered each other in a transition uh, episode and it didn't lead to bloodshed. In Iran, in Egypt, in Algeria, these are all cases that you like Islamists and non-Islamists just end, ended up in killing each other. But why the difference? So I argue there the organizational field was more balanced between Islamists and non-Islamists. This is a rift we have had in mm -hmm. Egypt, in Tunisia, in Algeria, and in Iran. So in these two cases, in Egypt, we had Muslim Brotherhood, very powerful organization, and then the youth and non-Islamist um, actors such as Muhammad al-Baradai and the six, April 6th, we are Khalid Said, and these other uh, secular or non-Islamist groups that we know. So after the after Mubarak fell, the game changed from protest politics now to institutional electoral politics. Muslim Brotherhood had a political machine to operate and to maneuver in the election. So election after election, they did much better than non-Islamists. Non-Islamists just kept losing. This brought them closer to the elements of the old regime. So in the 2013, they had this idea that with the Tamarud movement, um, they can provide popular pressure, military would step in, depose Morsian brothers, and then would give the power to the non-Islamists. I think from outside, it was clear this is not going to happen. Right. And they soon, after it happened, they realized they were mistaken. In Tunisia, the crisis was very similar. We had a weak political society, and Nahda, the Islamist party, was outside the country. They came back, but they were able to set up their branches and they grew very quickly. So when we read the newspapers of Tunisia, we see that non-Islamists also start to be alarmed about uh, the Islamist dominance over politics. And then this scene was po polarized very quickly. There were two assassinations. There were calls for military to go on an Egyptian route and route and just uh, cracked on, on Islamists. But what made the difference was there was a strong union, UJTT, in Tunisia. It, it was on the side of non-Islamists. Uh, the presence of this organization made the balance of forces between Islamists and non-Islamists. The organizational field was more balanced. You had Anahda on one side and you had UJTT on the other side. This gave non-Islamists more confidence that a political solution was possible. So they did mobilize and they did negotiate. UJTT was, was responsible for part of the protest that destabilized the country. But uh, they were also calling for national dialogue uh, for a long time. Eventually they came together and from their statements, I mean, in the book I have, I have documented this, that several non-Islamist figures uh, or newspapers say that 
Ujjeteta is a major force in the country. We don't have such thing in Egypt. I didn't find anyone saying there's this labor union on that organization on the side of non-Islamists. Even Anava itself at the peak of the crisis were saying that Ujjeteta is the organization we know. I mean, later they be, became part of the court that got the Nobel Peace Prize. The idea was that they mediated, but they didn't really mediate. They were they also mediated, but they were on the side of non-Islamists that also played a mediatory role. They and so the organization that was counterpart to UJTT in Tunisia was the Supreme uh, Council of Armed Armed Forces. Uh, this comparison was made in Tunisia, and the, like we, uh, I have quotes from officials of UJTT that said we are not a coup organization or and NASA. So people were making this comparison at the same time that they were learning from Egypt. Some wanted to go on an Egyptian route, but lots of forces in Tunisia didn't want to go on an Egyptian route. Let's take a step backward um, and talk about like the broader sweep of the book, because uh, while you have these case studies, you also have uh, you you ground this within a much larger uh, kind of global quantitative analysis of of which democracies succeed and which don't. So tell us a little bit about that and and the major findings you came up with there. Yeah, so I. This is a general argument. As I said, I argued that democracies that survive have a better chance of survival and growth are the ones that are rooted in longer episodes of protest mobilization. So to test this argument, I identified all democratic transitions that happened from 1950 to 2010. There were 112 democratic transitions in 80 countries. Some countries had more than one transition it failed and it were there was again another transition for example pakistan that i discuss in the book for each of these transitions i looked at the secondary sources that described that transition and uh i identified whether the transition was from above for example what it was the decision uh, of the military elite or the authoritarian incumbent elite to give power to civilians or hold multi-party elections, or was the result of uh, international intervention, this would be all democracy from above, or whether there was popular pressure from below. And if there was, was this armed struggle, or was it an unarmed movement, or both? And over how many calendar years it happened? So I created this original data set, and I merged it with uh, other control variables about the level of econ like economic production, GDP, oil production, ethnic composition, the type of the previous uh, authoritarian regimes, and many other things that we can talk about. Um, so the, the results, I, I, I found a significant uh, association between the length of unarmed mobilization that lead to a democratic transition and the chance of that democracy to survive also, the chance of that democracy to grow in terms of uh, quality, the chance of the civil society to grow in terms of quality, the ones that were resulted from longer period of mobilization had better chance of uh, growth. And then I looked at five cases that were in a way embedded in this uh, broader uh, quantitative analysis. So the major success stories that you have then are from outside the Middle East, uh, Poland and uh, South Africa. Yeah. Yes. Um, so in recent history, I think South Africa, we can say, is the longest uh, 
the pro-democracy campaign that we can learn a lot from. If we go back to the early part of the 20th century, the independence movement in India, again, is that is even the lo longer than South Africa. It also count. It also uh, depends on when we start to count. I could have counted South Africa much longer. But um, India, I don't study India, but it's worth noting that India had the longest uh, movement for independence. India is also the only democracy that survived after the decolonization. We had other democracies that emerged in the global south, but they all crumbled immediately. But South Africa, uh, so, um, I mean, everyone knows Nelson Mandela as a hero of South, South Africa. Mandela was member of African National Congress. And uh, I mean, African National Congress was formed in early 20th century. Um, they were doing mostly uh, nonviolent action. They, they were campaigning for inclusion of black people and colored people in South African politics. We know apartheid uh, became more entrenched in the middle of the 20th century. ANC, the ANC continued its campaign. It was uh, faced with violence, so they resorted to armed struggle. That's why Mandela was arrested and ANC went to exile. Other movements uh, continued in South Africa, Black uh, consciousness movement, which was striving to liberate Black people from psychological oppression of apartheid. And um, in 19, uh, I think, in, in, in during 70, 70s, there was an uprising, Soweto uprising, that students uh, had this uprising. It was crushed, and this had important consequences for South Africa. The opposition contemplated why we failed, so they, one thing they highlighted was issue of organizing. At that time, ANC had become kind of irrelevant to politics in South Africa. So it was a kind of return to politics of ANC. Part of it was organizing. Another part was coalition building because ANC was more inclusive in its politics than uh, BCM. In, in, ANC would be open to white people uh, that were also for the cause. They also had partnership with uh, South African Communist Party that were not all black people. Um, so the labor movement also started growing. And after the repression, South African government kind of a few years after made a few openings um, to uh, kind of channel the grievances within, within the system. In 1980s is when we have a lot of organizing and mobilizing in South Africa. Uh, we have the emergence of a new umbrella organization, United Democratic Front that uh, coordinated campaigns of nonviolent action within the country. And they really popularized Mandela as a leader of the movement. Also, the other leaders of uh, ANC that were ex in exile at the time. We also had the emergence of a trade union, um, Postatu, in the country, which to, until today is uh, the largest union in the country. So what we see in South Africa, we have mobilization over a long period of time, activists contemplate about their losses, they learn, they emphasize more organizing, they make coalitions. So the labor union part of the movement and ANC and United Democratic Front were not all on one side. But the uprising of 1980s uh, brought uh, the labor union Kusato closer to ANC and uh, United Democratic Front. In terms of discourses, they also uh, came closer to each other. So in end of 1980s, there was basically a deadlock between the opposition and government. So government decided at that time that they wanted to negotiate. 
And it was clear who to negotiate. So the uh, Mandela was released. The leadership of uh, opposition leadership came back to South Africa of ANC. UDF, United Democratic Front, was disbanded. And um, ANC became the leader of the opposition. When we read this story, and it seems very easy, but when we compare it with more recent cases of revolutions or transitions, we see this is we shouldn't take it for granted that a political party can speak on behalf of the opposition and be able to make negotiations and concessions without the whole front crumbling. I mean, look at Egypt. Yeah. The, the, the different factions of opposition didn't agree about what to do after, even, even in Tunisia and in many other cases. In Poland, we see a similar story. So again, we have had opposition to the communist regime starting from 1950s in 60s and 70s, three different factions mobilized in uh, Poland. We had uh, the Catholic Church, which is part of national identity in Poland. We had uh, intellectuals and students and workers. And they mobilized initially separately over three decades. It's in mid-70s to late 70s that uh, after losses and uh, each after each movement was faced with repression and couldn't continue, that different part of the movement recognized that they should come together, they should make a coalition. And this coalition was built both at the organizational and discursive level. At the organizational level, we had the formation of different organizations with shared membership. At the discursive level, uh, they defined the identity of a Polish person to be a Democrat, to be a worker and intellectual at the same time. So this, these identities wouldn't be in contradiction with each other. In 1980, we have the emergence of the Solidarity Movement and Solidarity expands for the first time communists led an independent union to exist in the country. A few million people became members of Solidarity. They practiced organizing democratic skills. They mobilized throughout the country. There were small, uh, uh, Solidarity was more an umbrella union. So there were teachers union, industrial workers union, nurses, and so on and so forth. In 81 days, they, uh, there was in a state of emergency. Solidarity uh, was disbanded. They arrested their leaders. A few years after they were released, Solidarity continued underground, but much more restricted. Again, in 1988, there were two waves of strike after a situation of economic crisis for the Communist Party. And then they decided to negotiate. It was clear who to negotiate with. Solidarity had established itself as the spokesperson of the opposition and Polish society. So they were able to negotiate. They had the society in their back. The results of negotiations was not as democratic as it was in South Africa. In South Africa, there were four years of negotiations between 1990 to 1994, and they wrote a democratic constitution as a result. The result of uh, negotiations that uh, Pol uh, Solidarity had with the communists in Poland would have been resulted more in something like an electoral authoritarian regime. But it was the result of the first election that uh, Solidarity had a landslide, and that changed the momentum. It was also important that they had the org organization to campaign on the ground and collect the vote for them. Then it was um, the, the prime minister that was uh, assigned from the rank of Solidarity. They did a lot of institutional reforms. They changed the constitution and um, 
it was then that basically the uh, transition was completed and the first government after the transition also was formed by Lech Walesa, who was the uh, leader of the solidarity and became the most uh, the first democratically elected uh, president of Poland. So one of the upshots of your book is, uh, you know, a set of lessons that won't be uh, very attractive to activists. Uh, and basically what you're saying, like, suppose you're talking to Iranian protesters right now, you'd be saying, don't be in a rush. Don't win too quickly um, if you want to have an enduring democracy at the end of the struggle. And uh, I can imagine a lot of activists like not being super enthusiastic about that advice. So, I mean, I wouldn't say don't win too quickly. If you can win quickly, I mean, be my guest, go, go for it. <laughs> but what I would say, I say this is a long road. In So when I, when I uh, look at the political scene in Iran, I see this idea that um, just get out the people, let's have some big protests, this regime would fall and all of the problems would be solved. And some of them would say even we should not talk about what comes after. It's They say it's true. A couple of these like celebrities that have become influential in Iran have said it's treason if you speak about the type of government that should come in place of the Islamic Republic. I would say these are issues to be talked about today. Uh, we cannot just leave it for the day after the after the fall of the regime because the, it is hard to bring down an authoritarian regime. I would say it's harder to build a democratic regime. Like destroying is easier than building something. And I would say we can't put all of our emphasis to get people out. I mean, yes, we do need to get people out, but we need to organize to get the people out. So part of our energy should go into the organizing. And what kind of discourse would create uh, organization building? I see a lot of discourse right now, for example, again, we're talking about Iran. A dominant discourse, at least among part of the opposition, has a lot of emphasis on the wrongdoing of Islamic Republic, how evil Islamic Republic is. And there is a lot of anger. And the strategy is the let angry and identify everyone that is associated with the Islamic Republic and make them the subject of our anger. Well, I mean, they have, I, and so they, this result to a lot of attacks within the movement, because if you don't agree with me, I call you an element of the Islamic Republic. You become subject of my wrath and my anger. This would not bring us together. This is the opposite of organizing. Organizing is about building connections. It's about uh, building capacity. And it operates through language of persuasion, not language of uh, intimidation and coercion. So I see that part of the opposition is basically mirroring the Islamic Republic. Islamic Republic saying, I'm the best thing that has ever happened to Iran or on the earth, and my enemies are the worst. Philip, on the other side, they say Islamic Republic is the most evil. We have anything we can do to go against Islamic Republic, we should do that. And it's not, this is not just exclusive to Iran. We saw in Egypt, the accusations that were going between different factions. In Syria, we have seen different accusations going between different factions. As long as two factions don't agree with each other, one accused the other to be the element of the regime or element of the foreigners and so on and so forth. So when, so if we emphasize organizing, then we have to ask what type of discourse, what type of language would bring in uh, organizing? Also, what story about our past 
would uh, bring more organization building. Part of organizing is also to give a picture of the future. If it goes through persuasion, I have to give you some hope. I have to tell you, okay, this is bad, but we are going to go in somewhere that is more inclusive, more uh, equal, egalitarian, is more democratic. So the vision of the more we have a vision of the future that is inclusive to everyone, then the more we have the capacity to engage people, to organize people, and to uh, build coalition. Just being angry and try to like find the identify elements of the regime and to attack them is not going to take us far. Well, we, we should be patient because it's a long road. We've been speaking to Ali Kadivar about his book, Popular Politics and the Path to Durable Democracy. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and now we speak to Killian Clark, Georgetown University, the author of a new article, Ambivalent Allies, How Inconsistent Foreign Support Dooms New Democracies, uh, just published in the Journal of Peace Research. Uh, Killian, uh, thanks for coming back onto the show. Great to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this new article. Yeah, so um, this is an article that uh, emerged out of research that I um, was doing for my dissertation. Um, my dissertation and, and forthcoming book is uh, examining the phenomenon of counter-revolution, and um, it focuses on the case of Egypt and the 2013 counter-revolution in Egypt. Um, and as I, I'm, I'm not an IR scholar, but you know, as I was doing this research, um, you know, I couldn't help but notice the importance of international actors in the sort of drama that took place um, between 2011 and 2013 in Egypt. Um, and I started to pay more attention to what these dynamics looked like um, and noticed something sort of interesting in, in what had happened in Egypt. Um, and as I paid more attention to this and went through my interviews and um, thought about this a little more theoretically, I came up with this, this concept of, of ambivalent allies, which I thought really uh, characterized what had happened in Egypt, particularly um, uh, in describing the relationship between the United States, uh, which of course is the most important foreign patron in Egypt, and the uh, government that was elected in 2012 that was led by Mohamed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and so what, what the piece argues is essentially that, that foreign ambivalence or ambivalent allies is something that can be really harmful to new democratic governments. Um, particularly following uh, these sort of unarmed uh, uh, revolutions. Um, and um, I, 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 the theoretical argument is basically that governments that are faced with uh, ambivalent allies are, are, are kind of in a bind, right? So what, what, what ends up happening and what ended up happening in Egypt is the government believes that it has uh, strong backing from a foreign power. And this is basically the position that the Morsi government had. They thought they had a strong ally standing behind them. But in fact, there was a lot more ambivalence in the relationship between the United States and Egypt. And within the Obama administration's foreign policy team, there was a lot of um, inconsistency in, and, and disagreement about the, the, the um, way to approach the transition and the degree of support that um, the U.S. government should be providing. Um, and Morsi's team wasn't really aware of this. Um, they weren't aware of the extent of the um, inconsistency within Obama's foreign policy team. Um, they believe that they had they had the backing of the United States. That, that's what they were hearing from their interlocutors and the, the folks they were talking to. Um, and as a result, they made some decisions during that year when they were in power that I argue they wouldn't have made if they had 
if they had known the extent to which the United States had sort of uh, second uh, doubts about um, mm-hmm. about the transition and about the prospects for democratization, they ended up ruling in a much more uh, narrow um, and insular way than I think they would have otherwise. They ended up kind of cutting out their um, formerly their uh, uh, their allies, um, the sort of secularist wing of the revolutionary coalition, uh, and they ended up, um, you know, ruling really with just their own narrow coalition and their own base um, as 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 the sort of backing for their for their government um, at the backing and the support of the United States. Um, so so paradoxically, I kind of argue that. Um, situations in which uh, a foreign ally, well, situations in which a foreign ally is a a strong backer of a democratic government are obviously good for the prospects for democratization. Um, But paradoxically, actually, there's there there are situations where if if the government knows that the foreign community, the foreign sort of the main foreign powers are standing against it, they will actually build a broader coalition, they will rely on a broader domestic base. And I I, I make this case using a shadow case uh, from Madagascar and the 2009 uprising in Madagascar, um, and show that if you actually have you know strong antagonism from the foreign you know community, uh, you're you're going to rely on a broader base and you're going to rule in a less uh, narrow and less exclusivist manner. Um, so that's the counterfactual that I'm kind of mm-hmm. playing out that, that that I think might have happened in Egypt if Morsi and his team had known how unsure. Uh, Obama's foreign policy team was about his government and and the prospects for democracy more broadly in Egypt. And so you're so the key actors inside of Egypt are getting mixed messages and the military is getting signals that maybe uh, some people wouldn't be so upset to see uh, to see Morsi gone. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, specifically, I think what happens in Egypt and I relied on my own interviews for this, but I also relied on some really good reporting um, by David Kirkpatrick, uh, who's written a book on Egypt. Um, but, you know, essentially what happened in Egypt was was Morsi and his team, Morsi came into power, he and, and his team didn't have really strong prior relationships with um, the U.S. government. Um, so they were mostly interacting with um, the U.S. ambassador to Egypt, Ann Patterson, um, and a couple of other uh, foreign policy officials who were in touch with them. And, and Ann Patterson, you know, really was a strong supporter of the Morsi government and and was trying to make things work. Um, You know, she was even known among opponents of the Morsi government in Egypt uh, as a sort of, you know, a a brotherhood lackey or a brotherhood. I mean, that's how they would refer to her, right? Because she was seen as so supportive of of the Morsi government. But what was happening back in Washington was that a lot of other senior members of Obama's foreign policy team were much more skeptical uh, of Morsi, um, they they were a lot of them had been skeptical about the prospects for a, a successful democratic transition in Egypt from the beginning. Um, a lot of this, I think, you know, stems back to issues of Islamophobia and you know uh, um, issues of of certain foreign policy uh, experts not believing that democracy can su- can succeed in the Middle East or in a Muslim majority country. Um, there was a lot of skepticism towards the Muslim Brotherhood as an Islamist organization. Um, you know, to be fair, Morsi and his team didn't do themselves a lot of favors. They 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 made some pretty significant blunders during that year that that further a- antagonized um, these foreign policy officials. And so what happened is while while they were receiving these sort of strong positive signals from folks like Ann Patterson, other members of the foreign policy team in Washington were growing very skeptical um, and then began actually uh, using these back channels to the Egyptian military 
to start to signal that, you know, probably a coup would actually be be tolerated, right? Um, and that it wouldn't be met with a strong response from Washington. Because from the military's perspective, the major concern they had in, in taking back power and stepping in was that they were going to jeopardize their relationship to their major foreign patron, right? I mean, the Egyptian military receives a billion dollars in US aid every year. So that's a really important relationship for them. And they wanted some signals, some assurances that there was not going to be serious blowback if they stepped in. And, um, you know, largely due to the reporting of David Kirkpatrick, uh, you know, we know now that they actually did receive those signals through various different channels. Now, the theoretical uh, contribution here is, is kind of an interesting mechanism that you identify that you've got a local balance of power, but it is shaped by the perceptions of what kind of international support you're likely to get. And those can be really, you know, quite different because of the private information that each side is receiving. And that, you know, can lead to some really unusual or unpredictable bargaining dynamics. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I, I sort of use these concepts from IR um, theory, sort of this idea of fuzzy signals and um, or, or, or noisy signals, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in the case of Egypt, um, you know, the military had much stronger prior relationships with folks in Washington. So they had these back channels um, so they could they could receive much more direct and clear signals than the Morsi administration could because they didn't have these pre-existing relationships. So they were really relying on you know, what Ann Patterson was telling them, what Obama was saying in his official speeches, um, you know, the, the kind of the official public facing foreign policy, which always throughout the transition was that the United States was standing behind this, behind this, this project and was backing democratization. That was always the official policy. But they didn't have these private back channels that would have allowed them to get these, um, these clearer and more direct signals. It's not um, like, yeah, it's so not like these disagreements were a great public secret, though. I mean, they could have just read The New York Times. Yeah, I mean, it's true there. You know, it was known from the beginning that, you know, even during the 18 days that there were these heated debates within Obama's foreign policy team about whether to stand behind Mubarak or when to jettison him or what kind of, you know. So, so yeah, they they maybe they were a little bit naive. But, you know, I, 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 I met with some quite senior members of his foreign of his team, of Morsi's team. Uh, those who were not currently in prison, um, and and they were they were pretty adamant that they you know in in a sense they weren't so much naive, but one of them one of their advisors put it to me in, a, in an interesting way. He said, you know, I really thought that we were past the era of U.S. backed coups. I thought that that just was an era that had that had ended, and that this was not something that the United States could get away with um, in in you know in 2013. Um, so that was an interesting way of thinking about it, you know, that he knew what the interests were. He knew, you know, he knew that um, there was disagreement, but he just didn't think that the United States would accept a military coup like that. And it's interesting to kind of, you know, think through theoretically then, you know, kind of what what is more important, public signaling, private communications? What do you put more weight on? Uh, because private communications can pretty easily be cheap talk. Um, and public statements might be seen as having more binding force. Um, but in this case, the opposite seems to have been true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, who has built these relations. I mean, the, the Egyptian military has all these longstanding relationships with the U.S. military. So now we're talking outside of the official foreign policy channels. 
you know, and these go back to, uh, uh, you know, uh, a lot of Egyptian military officers have been trained in the United States. They come over here, they meet. So a lot of the signaling, a lot of the folks who were who were engaged in this back channeling and these these private signals were actually um, folks in Obama's team who were um, more tied to the intelligence and military uh, uh, organizations. Um, you know, the other the other issue that I think is interesting in this case is to what extent did, did new democratic governments rely on foreign support versus domestic support, right? So in, 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 in Morsi's case, I think there was a very clear sense that they were trading domestic support for foreign support, right? They were willing to go without the support of the secularist wing of the, of the original revolutionary coalition because they thought that the United States backing was enough, right? And, and would replace that essentially. Um, and I and that was a calculation made, right? That that was a that was a more valuable set of allies, right? If you will, than their potential domestic allies, right? Which had you know arguably helped bring Morsi to power in the first place, because Morsi was elected in part due to the support of you know the electoral support of a lot of folks from that wing of the original coalition. As you know from uh, from your own research and and uh, and everything, I mean, these issues were hotly debated in the Egyptian public sphere at the time, and conspiracy theories were rampant. And you you mentioned the uh, you know the discourse around uh, uh, Ann Patterson and you know, Hillary Clinton, and you know the, this this stuff was widely discussed. But what it sounds like is that the Brotherhood thought that they could ignore all of that because they were getting private communications from the U.S. government. Yeah, I think I mean obviously these were these were really tumultuous times and um governing during these times is 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 extremely challenging. Um and so I think, you know, for for Morsi and his team, they were trying to find a couple of sort of, you know, solid rocks that they could anchor on, right? And they thought that US backing was was one of those things. Um and and you know, they they were they were they were getting those signals. They were meeting with Ann Patterson all the time and she was saying to them you know, yes, the U.S. stands behind you. No, the United States is not going to support a coup. We're not, you know, we're, and and they and they believe that. Um, and uh, you know, ultimately, I think made some decisions that really fatally weakened them. Right at the at that point on June 30th, 2013, and then three days later at the coup, they ended up being what I what I say in the article. I, they ended up being doubly exposed. Mm -hmm. Right, they had no foreign backing from the United States. And they had no domestic backing, right, other than their own kind of narrow base, right? And so they ended up being doubly exposed to this military, this popular military coup. I know it's interesting because the ambivalence that you describe is, you know, kind of a function of these divisions inside the in the government between the different pol different politicians and officials. But that's also, of course, being affected by what's happening on the ground. And so there's constant updating of information. So like Morsi's mm -hmm. behavior, his ability to mediate uh, the crisis in Gaza, you know, kind of that was a that was a check in his favor in much of Washington. Look, he, he didn't act all crazy like we thought he would. But then things like the, uh, you know, the the big public event on jihad in Syria and all of that kind of pushes the other camp uh, to the fore. So it's funny, the ambivalence isn't necessarily, you know, kind of intentional deception so much as uh, American officials are updating uh, their priors. That, that's exactly right. Yeah. No. And I and I say it's it, 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 it's not um, it's not intentional deception. I mean, it's it's much more sort of, you know, mixed mm -hmm. messages, you know, dithering, inconsistency, disagreement within a team. And and the other thing I, I do talk about in the article are, you know, sort of what are the conditions we 
can we we can think would would breed this ambivalence like mm -hmm. when can we expect this to, to this foreign policy position to emerge um so one of one of the things is is what you just mentioned you know the, the behavior of the government that comes to power matters right if 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 you know the 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 gaza uh, um situation did um build a lot of goodwill for morsi but then after that he made a number of different um decisions and he behaved in certain ways that really um, turned off a lot of foreign policy officials. And I contrast, there was a the, one of the other cases in the article is this case Burkina Faso. And the, mm -hmm. the leader of power after that revolution is, you know, he's, he's a former UN official. Everyone knows him. He's very sort of dignified. He's a statesman. He, so he, he behaves in a very different way. Then more, and and that is part of why the United the the foreign the foreign community is so willing to stand behind that government. So that's so that's one condition that that matters. And then the two other conditions that I think are important. First of all, the the region in which the transition takes place. So I think the fact that this occurred in the Middle East in a Muslim majority country is important. Uh, I already mentioned that there are these sort of pre-existing attitudes towards the, you know or, or ideas about how successful democracy can be in these places. So that's one thing. Um, obviously, the United States has major strategic interests in the Middle East, um, which you know many scholars have written about how that affects their 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 the degree to which they're willing to support democracy in the region. So so the region matters. And then the third thing is, I think the mode of of, of transition matters. Mm -hmm. So so when transition occurs through a revolutionary process or you know nonviolent revolution like this. It's messier and it comes out of nowhere and it's and, and and there's not as much ability for these foreign policy actors to shape things when there's more of a negotiated process, when it's, you know, something that they uh, can influence from the beginning, then I think they're, they end up being more comfortable with the democratic government that emerges. But in a revolutionary situation, they have no control. This revolution came out of nowhere. Um, it surprised them. They didn't know how to respond. And so right from the beginning, they were sort of uh, cautious and hesitant about how to deal with it. And so I think when transitions happen through these revolutionary processes, that's another factor that can breed ambivalence, basically. Very interesting. I've been speaking to Killian Clark, Georgetown University, about his article, Ambivalent Allies. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and now we're joined by Shreya Parikh, a PhD candidate at Sciences Sciences Po and also at the UNC uh, Chapel Hill. Um, and uh, she's the author of a short article that just came out about the recent wave of, of anti-immigrant and anti-Black racism unleashed by uh, Tunisia's President Kais Saeed. Uh, Shreya, thank you so much for joining us. Um, tell us a little bit about what's going on in Tunisia and how it relates to your research. Well, thank you, Mark, for having me, and I'm glad you have a very generous reading of the article I just published. Um, so what is going on in Tunisia? So we had um, the president of um, of Tunisia, Kais Saeed, who um, had a meeting with the National Security Council, and in this meeting, he discussed uh, how there needs to be urgent measures, uh, and I'm quoting the, the text that was published on the, the official Facebook page, um, that there needs to be urgent measures to counter the influx of irregular migrants from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, he also used a lot of language um, so that that you know sort of traces itself to like conspiracy theory type um, theories, 
um, where he was saying that there that there are hordes of irregular migrants coming to Tunisia, and this is a part of um, some you know uh, conspiracy. Some like fund like some groups have been given funding uh, since two thousand eleven, um, so that the Tunisian state uh, erases its Arab Muslim identity and becomes uh, an African nation. Um, so he made he publishes a speech, um, and just after that, you have just an unleashing of uh, society level violence, supported by both the state um, members as well as civilian society members, um, against anyone who falls into the category of uh, African. Um, so, so coming back to this term of African, which is you know this is this use in Tunisia of the term les Africains. Um, and one could ask, one would naturally ask, like Tunisia, which is located mm -hmm. in the Tunisia, in the in the African continent. So, who are these Africans they are against? Um, so, people, so in the Tunisian vernacular, the use of the term les Africains, uh, Africans, um, it, it it is used specifically to name black bodies, um, usually of sub-Saharan African origin. So, I mean, the, the immediate um, idea is that les Africains, uh, the Africans are black people of sub-Saharan African origin um, and who are, so it's, I, mean, I mean, this. I'm describing the social imagination of like the, the Tunisian, um, this, the vernacular, um, that they're illegal, uh, that they're trying to take away Tunisian jobs, that they are eating away all the food products that are less and less visible on the the Tunisian supermarket, you know, in the Tunisian supermarkets like milk, rice, coffee, sugar. Um, so, so, this, so there's this discourse. There, I mean, so he's using this discourse. Um, that is that is already present in the Tunisian society from a very long time, and there's a whole history mm -hmm. uh, that we can trace to this this construction of the social imagination of les Africains, the African. Um, so, so what is happening now, very specifically in terms of violence on the ground, the massive the massive scale violence on the ground, you have massive scale arrests of anyone who who gets racialized as African mm -hmm. um, by the police. So they're arresting all sub-Saharan African migrants they can find on the streets, whether or not they are regular or irregular, like in the French term, regular irregular is used for like whether they have legal documentation or not. So documented and undocumented migrants of sub-Saharan African origin are getting arrested. Um, if they get arrested, usually um, if they have the, the, the residence permit, they what what my what my interlocutors are saying that they 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 are released after like about two days of arrests, um, but after signing papers uh, like false documents and false claims um, in Arabic, which they cannot read, um, that state that um, they are attempting to make illegal migration to to Italy, uh, which is um, a crime under the Tunisian law. Um, and, you know, these kind of instances of like, you know, pressure to sign false documentation, arrests of uh, like documented or undocumented sub-Saharan African migrants, this has already been present for last 10 years. But the scale at which we are seeing it right now after Kai Said's speech is, is just unimaginable. Um, so this is a state level, um, you know, violence that is happening. So in terms of the civilian level violence that is happening, um, you have stabbings 
um, like near fatal stabbings of sub-Saharan African migrants in the streets of Tunis, in Sfax, uh, which is the city that is located south of Tunis. Um, you have kidnappings, uh, you have cases of rape. One of my interlocutors was saying that uh, what happens usually is that Tunisian men uh, pretend that they're police, approach a woman, uh, Sub-Saharan African migrant women say that, oh, you're being, uh, we need you to come with us. They take them to, in their car, take them to an undisclosed space and they get raped. Um, and there's also like refusal. So also Sub-Saharan African migrants are getting kicked out of their work. They're getting kicked out of their homes. They're finding themselves without shelter. Um, with uh, a lot of them are just camping currently in front of like the the institute the the IOM which is the um, international if, like, migration. Forget, yes, thank you. Um, a lot of them also camping in front of the Cote d'Ivoire, like Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast embassy, um, uh, just to ask for like repatriation from their embassy. Um, and you know, it's just become very violent. I mean, there was already a lot of violence against sub-Saharan African migrants, whether they're documented or not, um, because there's always been an assumption that they're illegal, uh, irrespective of their documentation status. So this has unleashed something genuinely new. Yeah, this is very new. Uh, the scale is new. So the foundations of this type of violence has already existed. Um, both at state level and in the civilian, uh, like the, the civilian society level, but the scale we see right now is is beyond imaginable. And it's not just migrants, though, uh, as you pointed out, it extends to racialized yes. uh, Tunisians as well. Mm, absolutely. Um, so it is not the the violence we are seeing today is not necessarily pointed out against the image of black Tunisians, but because black Tunisians, many of them are assumed to be sub-Saharan African migrants. Um, so one um, black Tunisian activist woman who was harassed on the street, um, she basically says that the, the harasser was basically saying, oh, you are a migrant, you're a migrant. Um, and this is all, I mean, this has been a lot of cases that I've been documenting before the, the, before the, the president's uh, speech or, you know, the claims. Um, this was already happening, uh, where a lot of violence that was being faced on the streets by Black Tunisians came because they were assumed to be sub-Saharan African migrant. And the moment they open their mouth and speak in Tunisian Arabic, they, you know, the, the, the harassers usually like, oh, excuse me, Samahni, you know, like, excuse me, uh, you are my sister or you're my brother. I'm sorry, I thought you were, you are l'Africa or you are, you are the African. Um... But I mean, of, of course, um, it does affect them clearly. But I mean, there's also the other story that is happening right now, which is um, the attacks on um, black Tunisian activists. Uh, so, for example, um, Huda yesterday told me, uh, Huda Mzildet, who's a black Tunisian scholar and activist, she said that her that the association, the you know civil society organization that she helped co-found, which is Why They Found Tunisian Noir, which is the voices of uh, Tunisian Black women, um, has received a lot of attacks, a lot of like false conspiracy type claims um, against them, being like, oh, you're taking European money, and this is also going on currently against Sadia Mosba, who's also one of the key Black Tunisian activists fighting for. Um, black rights in Tunisia. 
So the claim currently against her is that she's uh, helping les Africains, the Africans, to become Tunisian nationals and taking money from the German embassy to do her work of, uh, you know, making Tunisia African. It's it's, uh, remarkable, but perhaps not surprising that all this is happening in the wake of what had actually been a somewhat successful uh, activist campaign uh, in support of the rights of Black Tunisians and changing laws on slave names and 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 that Absolutely. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is very surprising, and I think there is a paradox uh, to this. Uh, to what I mean, again, quoting the conversation with Hodam Ziu that yesterday, where she says like there was a racial awakening, and now there is a you know the racial uh, what's the term she used? Uh, just hatred, like. Mm-hmm. you know forms like racial hatred um and um indeed that that is that is a paradox but i think we the the civil society foundations that has been built after 2011 um, by black tunisian civil society actors activists researchers um as well as uh, the work, you know, the work of um, uh, groups like ASAT, which is the Association des Étudiants et Stagiaires uh, Subsahariens en Tunisie. So it's like the association of um, like sub-Saharan students and uh, interns in Tunisia. They have been also very foundational in um, sort of creating a form of support group for um the student the sub-saharan student population uh, and to some extent also creating a form of community for those who are irregular even though that there remains a form of like you know it, it doesn't completely overlap but they do like sometimes the, their help does extend to the undocumented sub-saharan african migrant groups um so they are there i think that moment has created the solid foundation on which um there is support provided to those affected today because all this foundation of the different civil society groups happened in the post 2011 um mm-hmm. yeah whatever context that was political economic yeah yeah and so the and obviously this is all happening in the current political climate where you you know with Kai Saeed's ever escalating authoritarian repression um and economic crisis and it seems like to me at least like kind of a classic scapegoating strategy to try and divert attention yeah absolutely um i think i mean my interpretation of the event is that he is using any any claims that can sort of you know, sort of give away, sort of like outsource his responsibilities to any form of other, like easy other. And the other has, you know, the the other that has been, been scapegoated has been the, all the form, all forms of political opponents, NGOs, you know, who are like, you know, his, his conspiracy theories is that, you know, that there's money coming in from abroad um, to change, to like make, to change like Tunisia, to attack Tunisia. Uh, our great nation, um, and now, of course, Les Africains. You know, like uh, he's like he's using he, he's basically using the the discourse that has already been present at the civilian level and you know in the society level. You have so so this kind of discourse I had already heard before, um, where like women and men claim that oh you know like Tunisia is going to be hundred percent hundred percent black because all the good Tunisians are leaving to Europe and uh, you know all these Africa the Africans are staying um and uh, you know it's that 
it's going to become a criminal country. So these kind of discourse, this discourse has been there and like slowly proliferating in the society. And he sort of just picked it up uh, like other members of like the political administration who have taken it up and instrumentalized it for for their own personal gains. I mean, that is my interpretation is that it's a total instrumentalization and sort of uh, outsourcing of uh, responsibilities. And of course, the uh, the focus on migration, as you point out in the article, is also ironic because of the ongoing uh, migration crisis to Europe, and uh, kind of as the kind of the double doubly implicated uh, nature of Tunisia and all of that as they try and respond to European pressures to control uh, migrant flows. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this, I, I think there is a paradox here in, in terms of relationship with migration regime, the, the global migration regime that puts uh, Tunisia somewhere in the middle um, as a transit uh, site. You know, with, of course, there are Tunisians moving, trying to um, uh, trying to go to Europe. There are also sub-Saharan migrants trying to go to Europe via Tunisia. Um, and the paradox is that Kais Saeed is using a far-right uh, rhetoric um, against these people. You know, it's, it's what what I found very ironic is is this use of you know very white uh, supremacist uh, great replacement ideology. In I don't know if he himself has made the link. You know, that is a mm -hmm. question I'm asking. Was it was is he thinking through what he's saying? Is he constantly, you know, consciously making the link? I think it, it's dangerous to say like, oh, he thought about like great replacement and like, you know, took it over. Maybe it's just like long-term internalization of these ideas and he just sort of is spewing whatever is coming. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's, that's a question I'm asking is like, you know, was, was he intentionally looking at this great replacement ideology, you know, like, so Eric Zemmour, the far, the French far right politician who is known for exposing um, this, this great uh, replacement mm -hmm. ideology. He tweeted the next day being like, oh, look at Tunisia. They are also facing these like hordes of migrants and, this is like, you know, the fact that there is a great replacement also happening everywhere. Um, no, so that's a question I, I mean, I, we don't know the intention. We don't really know the intention. What we can do is interpret his in intentions. No, one last question, though, is so I, I saw... Uh, uh, the Tunisian uh, tennis star Ons she tweeted, you know, that kind of the the, the yeah. famous cover of the African and Arab, uh, you know, unity, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how that played out, but um, have there been pushback um, by, to this racist campaign by civil society, by other public figures, or is everyone kind of swept up in this uh, in this madness? I think everyone is. I mean, people who see this as a as a racist uh, discourse, who see precedence discourse as a racist discourse, and are just seeing the violence as violence. Um, of course, they are also sort of by the, the overwhelming uh, scale of this violence and trying to help out on the ground. But they, I mean, they're also denouncing. I think both both what you said is happening at the same time, where everyone is completely overwhelmed by what is going on, but also they are putting in all the effort to denounce it. You know, so so on the twenty fifth of February, there was a big march in Tunis that was organized um, 
to denounce this. Of course, you you know, the, the, the usual complaint is that the people who were there are the usual protesters, you know, it's the, civil, mm -hmm. the people who have already been speaking against racism in the Tunisian society, you know, feminists and, uh, you know, NEMTI members, NEMTI is like Sadia Musbez Association, um, denouncing uh, anti-Black racism. Um, no, I think everyone who sees this as racism is denouncing it. Um, but then there's also at the same, I think what is happening is that people who are denouncing it, I feel like they are speaking with each other rather than speaking outside the bubble to those who is like who are you know who are with like this ideology who use this ideology or convinced by this ideology that there is indeed a great replacement so i feel that there is um there is no i, I wouldn't say there's no conversation happening but i, I feel like I don't know. I mean, like I, I, every time I think about that, I feel like I'm, I'm I'm just frozen. Like, of course, I'm writing, I'm speaking, I'm trying to like document everything openly. But who is my audience? It's, the audience is usually people who already know what is going on, who are aware of these things. Mm -hmm. So the great question is, of course, like, how do you bring this conversation of like, you know, that people who are denouncing with facts and everything? Um, to the people who are, you know, is proliferating this this very racist ideology, like, so you have so many Facebook groups who are just who who are spreading, you know, where this this discourse is spreading um, very easily. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's a question that that I still have, and I hope that uh, somehow we. And I, I think this is also a very universal question, you know, when you have people that I, mean, that I also saw in India when you had like immense um, anti-Muslim hatred and you still have a lot like an immense uh, anti-Muslim hatred by the Hindu ideology. Um, but the people who are speaking up about the violence of this Hindu ideology are, end up sort of speaking with, among themselves um, and not with and not to those who are spreading the violence of this Hindu ideology. So, yeah, it's a very universal question I'll end with. Great. Well, well, thank you, Shreya, and um, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Mm -hmm.